You're listening to the weekly podcast for Hillcrest Covenant Church. For more information, go to hillcrestcovenant.org. So Dom, thank you for being here. Um, I want to actually start our time before Dom shares uh, reading a scripture passage. You know, as a covenant church, we love um, to ask the que- two questions. You know, how is your walk and where is it written? And, and this morning, I want to I share a little bit about um, from a text that Dom has asked me to share um, from where it's written this morning, because that's the foundation of, of what we're all about. And we believe that these, um, these words, uh, when they're read, get a hold of our hearts and shape us and mold us into the people that God wants us to be. So from Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 6, reading into chapter 2, it says this. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all, the genera- all, all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to, the, to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put the slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to the dread Uh, came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on delivery on a delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and to and the people, increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave them this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, uh, you must throw in the Nile and let the girls live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbanks. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it, and she saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is, the, this is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, 
Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let me pray for us as Don continues this morning. So, Lord, I thank you so much for Don, and I thank you for the words that he's going to share with us this morning. But, Lord, even more importantly, I thank you, Father, for, for the words that you shared with us from, from Scripture and the Lord and the way you're going to speak through Dom. God, as we hear these words, as, as we even learn things that we might not even be aware of, God, work in our lives. Holy Spirit, we invite you to, to draw us closer to you. We invite you to move in our hearts. We invite you to stir us to be people of action, people that don't just hear the words and do nothing about it, but people that hear the words that you have put in front of us, Lord, and go live them out. Lord, we thank you for Dom. We pray that you would just bless every word that comes from his mouth. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I bring greetings to you from Chicago and Covenant offices. And more specifically, I bring greetings to you from your former pastor, uh, Mark Severson, who tells me to welcome you all. And um, I, I was talking to Nate, and he told me that it's worthwhile to mention, because it might um, endear me to some of you, that um, I come from a family full of Jayhawks. Um, I have... Uh, four generations in my family. Uh, both my parents are actually KU graduates, and so he, he told me that some of you would appreciate that. <laughs> so um, as we talk today, I know um, we read the text, and there might have been a little bit of anxiety rising, like, are we really going to talk about that today? Like, that's what we're going to do. Um, but actually, I, I really wanted to talk about the power of God and how the power of God is actually made manifest in very subtle ways in this passage. But I also want to talk about how this passage really, for me, at its core, is really talking about how do you have the power to choose love in the face of fear? And I, I think that's a, a very poignant word for us today in the midst of the division and the fear that's so palpable around us. How does the gospel inspire us to choose love and bear witness to something different for a world that desperately needs it? And so um, as we go, though, before we press into um, the text, I want to give us a little bit of time to unpack this notion of love, because let's be honest, the word love is something that means everything and nothing at the same time today. We talk about how we love donuts, we talk about how we love the chiefs, we love our spouse. Hopefully there's a difference in what we mean when we deploy the word love, but it's something that we say so from all the, uh, so commonly that I think it can lose its weight. And so I want to press into a biblical definition of love and actually see what scripture is talking about, how the love of God, the sacrificial love, is different than the way that we deploy the word oftentimes. So when we think about love, um, it all starts in John 3.16. We know that God... Uh, gave his son to us uh, because of love. He said love inspires the incarnation, and the incarnation is pivotal for us because it's ultimately what uh, claims and restores us um, as the people of God. So then we go to Romans, and we learn about how God's love was not even something that was um, 
that was not, that was restricted, but God loved us while we were yet enemies of God, while we were still sinners. God's love claims and transforms us. And then we see that God, in praying to the Father, prays that one day that we will become one as he and the Father are one. And through that oneness, he talks about that oneness transforming love, uh, promoting producing love in the world and ultimately transformation and unity in our midst. And so in John 13, three, uh, 34 through 35, it says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What I find really interesting about this passage is that it doesn't say when you love one another, but it says if. And that's really important because we have free will. God doesn't force us to do anything. Uh, we get to choose love. But given how consistent the commission to love is throughout the biblical text, one should ask, what keeps us from choosing to love one another, particularly sacrificially love one another? Well, we all know the uh, Sunday school answer is sin, but and that is the actual uh, defin uh, reason, but we usually use, we say sin and we just leave it there. But I want to unpack both this notion of what the purpose of our love is and ultimately why the reasons why we choose not to love. So when we actually look why we are commissioned to love, there are four things that I take from this text. Our love should produce unity and reconciliation in the world. That's the purpose of our love. Our love has a missional and even an evangelistic purpose. People will come to know who Jesus is through how we love. As new creations, our love attests to the fact that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in and through us. And then finally, our love should make uh, God's name known and love felt throughout a broken world. That's the purpose of our love. When we talk about sin, though, and what it does and how it keeps us from loving, I want to break this down a little bit. Sin divides us and keeps us from loving our neighbors as Jesus loved us. Sin waters down our definition of love, keeping us from radically and sacrificially choosing to love one another, especially across lines of difference. Sin distorts how we see our neighbor and how we interact with them. It even distorts who we define as our neighbor. Sin impacts our personal relationships, but it also taints laws, systems, structures, and our culture at large. Sin causes us to doubt God's love for ourselves, and it causes us to buy into the lie that we don't belong to one another. And then lastly, sin is inherently connected to the love of money, and it is driven by fear-mongering. And we're going to unpack how we see this happen in this passage in Exodus today. But when we conform to the patterns and the logics of this world, we become complicit in what happens when sin takes over and love is not our orientation. And so scripture is explicit in Romans 12 too. It tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewings of your mind, renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of our Father. And so in this, we see that when we choose not to love, we choose to actually be informed by this world that has other priorities than the gospel. And because of that, that's what we see unfolding in this passage in Exodus. 
So to give us a little bit more succinct focus on that passage, I, I highlight this quote from a theologian by the name of Daniel Grudy. He says, in the Bible, Egypt is the first in a series of empires, including Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, that embody power structures that benefit the elite, enslave the poor, and dominate the meek. The notion of empire often describes political entities, but it is not limited to them. And this is the key. He says, symbolically, the empire represents any power that aggregates to itself the power that belongs to God alone, or any group or institution that subjugates the poor and the needy for its own advantages. This, my brothers and sisters, is exactly what's happening in Exodus. The Egyptian empire, all of its prosperity, all of its influence, all of its power is rooted in the subjugation of Hebrew people. The slavery and the oppression that the Hebrews endure is why Egypt becomes the powerhouse that it is. And we read in the text, we go to the next slide, that all of this flows from Pharaoh's fear. Insecure leaders rule out of their fear, and their fear leads them into sin. And when we're not careful, that sin that they ultimately kind of live out of becomes something that we're all complicit in as a nation. Pharaoh, it says, um, in verse 9, it talks about his fear. And then a few verses later, we see that one of the hallmarks of empire is that they use power to force people into submission. So he intensifies their oppression the more fearful he becomes. And then ultimately, we see that Pharaoh uses um, propaganda to produce a fake peace. So he tells his people that he's ultimately going to produce peace and unity and stability for the nation through oppression, injustice, and warfare. And we know as Christians who are followers of the Prince of Peace that true peace never comes through that. But the gospel tells us that true peace comes through sacrificial love. And so in this, I want you to take a moment and put yourselves in the shoes of Mo Moses' mom. You're living in a society that literally has created a law that says that you must kill your precious baby. You do everything you can to preserve his life. For three months, you, you cause him to be a baby fugitive, trying to preserve his life because you know that this isn't God's desire for your child. And in that moment, she's forced, she comes up to her, end, her wit's end. She says, there's literally nothing else that I can do. All I can do is create this makeshift basket and fully entrust my baby to God. And in that we start to see the power of God manifested because when Moses gets in the water, he literally goes to the worst place in you and my mind that he could possibly go. He goes to the house in which the decree comes from that he must be put to death. And then he's found by one of the worst people that you and I would think he could be found by. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter who ultimately had been, had been indoctrinated in her household from yay high that Hebrews' lives didn't matter. They were expendable people. And you would think that when she found him, Moses' fate is sealed. But we see the power of God actually at work in this text. And we're going to come back and really hone in on that in a minute, but I want to I wanna make a couple connections in before we get to that part of the story in the fact that we see that God makes a way out of the impossible. What we think there is no way, that's when God shows up the most mightily. 
And I think what's really important, though, is that when we read this passage, oftentimes I think one of the real bad ways we learn to read the Bible is we think about the Bible as a collection of ancient stories that has no bearing on our lives today. We don't really see that the Bible is actually, the Bible is actually a lamp unto our feet, showing us what it means to navigate this broken world. And when we see stories about systemic injustice and oppression, we read this story, and honestly, for most people, this passage is reduced down to a children's Bible study that we talk about how God made a way for Moses in the basket. But we never come back as adults to read this passage to consider what does it have to say for us within our adult formation. And I actually think it has some profound lessons for us. So we're going to spend a few minutes talking about that, and then we're going to come back and actually bear witness to the power of God at work in this passage. And so when we look at systemic injustice and we look at uh, societies that are predicated upon oppression and injustice and dehumanization of other people, the first place most of us go to is Germany and the Nazis and what they did to the Jews and the Holocaust. And it's, 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 it's a tragic story about how one can become so invested in the self-interest that you turn a blind eye to how what you're benefiting from causes death and oppression and injustice to your neighbor. But when we think about that, it's easy for us in this nation to think about it in regards to the Germans because it's out there. So I want to bring it a little bit closer to home and actually talk about how we've seen the same passage play out in our nation. So we know that this conversation really starts with Native Americans and um, the way in which the doctrine of discovery religiously legitimated land theft, genocide, and enslavement. And we live in a nation where we presently, uh, where we enacted more wars against our Native people than any country in the history of the world. After that, physical genocide was enacted, the ones who were able to survive that ultimately had to endure a cultural genocide through Native American boarding schools, where the mantra of the boarding schools was to kill the Indian and save the man. Um, and then when we talk about this, a group that we usually don't talk about in regards to systemic injustice in our nation is Asian Americans. But Asian Americans have endured the same type of treatment and dehumanization. And I want to talk about the power of propaganda, particularly with the Asian American population. I want you to know that these were all propaganda pieces that people were hired to produce to ultimately create anti-Asian sentiments. This anti-Asian sentiment was not just there just to create social distress, uh, social unrest, but it ultimately led to legislative persecution. And so I want you to see up in the top right, you have a, no, look, go back, go back, sorry. Um, in the top right, you have this picture where Asian Americans are depicted as people who eat rats. And then right below it, this is a sign from California where it would say no dogs and no Chinese allowed, literally dehumanizing. Um, and we see that this propaganda ultimately led to the Chinese Exclusionary Act, the one and only time that we excluded an entire ethnic group of people from being able to immigrate into our country just because of their ethnic identity. And this law was able to stay on the books for 60 years. But this kind of persecution and this type of propaganda didn't just stop with the Chinese. We actually saw it continue, um, let's go to the next slide, um, with the Japanese. And these are all images that our beloved Dr. Seuss created, who was hired to produce anti-Japanese propaganda that ultimately helped usher in uh, the uh, uh, Japanese internment camps. And we see what there's a pattern to it. There is this creation of an us and them. 
Then uh, Japanese were, uh, per uh, they were ultimately depicted as perpetual foreigners, people who could never truly be US citizens, never truly be trusted and fit into our society. And then ultimately that leads them to be subhuman. When this, when this uh, paradigm plays out and the us is them is created, things that would never be permissible to do to us in our own become completely acceptable to do to others because they're not like us. There's something categorically different. And so I shouldn't feel a conviction when I see them suffering, when I see systems and structures at play um, creating death and destruction amongst them. And so because of this, we need to know that at the time that Executive Order 9066 was commissioned to create the Japanese internment camps, there were 127,000 people of Japanese ancestry in our land at that time. We rounded up 120,000 people and forced them into incarceration camps just because of their ethnic identity. And not one person was ever convicted of a criminal offense. 60% of the people who were rounded up were US citizens. This is what happens when we conform to the patterns and the logics of this world. When we talk about this in regards to African Americans, generally we talk about it in regards to slavery, but I wanna go beyond slavery because that's not the only articulation of this. Um, we actually see that after slavery, there was a period known as Reconstruction where African Americans were liberated to actually, in the South, to actually pursue um, equity for the first time. And because of that, there was this backlash that starts to arise. And the phenomenon of lynching and the terroristic uh, group of the Klan emerges. And we see that there is this, this um, this violence that is able to be unleashed through propaganda. To give you an example of this, I wanna show you this quote from the governor of Mississippi in 1907. He says, if it is necessary, every Negro in the state will be lynched and it will be done to maintain white supremacy. When you're the governor and you're emboldened to espouse this type of toxicity in front of your constituents, it literally opens up the floodgates for racial violence. And because of that, um, we know that between 1877 and 1952, at least 5,500 African Americans were lynched in this nation. But because of that also, there became this, this, this phenomenon that manifested itself called spectacle lynchings. Spectacle lynchings were these carnival-like experiences that were curated and all revolved around the desecration of the image of God in black people who were tortured, killed, and maimed for entertainment. Um, historians actually say that socially spectacle lynchings functioned at their time the way that the NFL does for us today. They were the major social soiree of its time. The largest spectacle lynching in our nation's history had 20,000 people who were present at it. As spectacle lynchings, um, people would not only be hung, but people oftentimes have body parts cut off. Those body parts would be jarred and sold to the crowd as souvenirs. There would be professional photographers who were hired to photograph lynched bodies, and those photographs, like this one, would be mass reproduced and turned into postcards. Those postcards would be mailed out to families and friends, inviting them to future lynchings. Because of this, um, we oftentimes say, the world is so depraved, they desperately need Jesus, and yes, they do, but we also need to reckon with the fact that the church has been complicit with a lot of this. 
And in this, I want to highlight this quote from Ryan Ho Niebuhr. He says, if there was a drunken orgy somewhere, I would bet 10 to 1 a church member was not in it. But if there was a lynching, I would bet 10 to 1 a church member was in it. You see, spectacle lynchings most oftentimes took place on Sunday afternoon after church, and they were well attended by white Christians. As we try to move forward together as the interconnected body of Christ, we have to talk about these hard parts of our history if we're going to learn from them and move forward and bear a more faithful witness in a racially divided world. Our love and our ability to speak up and show up and bear witness to something different when things like this are what's normal is what helps people know who we follow. Scripture tells us our love by our love, people will know that we are Jesus' disciples. And it's by our loves in moments like this that we're willing to step up, show up, and speak up and bear witness to the truth of the gospel in the midst of propaganda and fear-based rhetoric that keeps us from loving one another. That's when the world will know who we are. And so when we see how this is historically played out, I also want to include our Latin American brothers and sisters. And when we talk about this conversation about immigration today, one of the things that we don't oftentimes talk about is the fact that a number of people actually never crossed the border, but the border actually crossed them. And we actually don't know the historic realities of how much of our country actually used to be Mexico. And what are the implications for that? What we also don't know about, let's go to the next slide, Programs like the Bercero program and Operation Wetback, where we intentionally recruited people to come across the border to work for us when we needed them while we were at war and we had a work shortage, and then as soon as we didn't need them anymore, we sent them back. What are the implications of this push and pull, and how does it form the, inform the conversation we have today? Where we now know that because of the crisis that's going on at our border right now, there, let's go to the next slide, 21% um, of children who either come alone as unaccompanied minors or who are separated from families have been forced to judicially represent themselves in the court of law. Some kids as young as three years old, who, some of which don't even speak English, and we call this justice. The church has an immense opportunity to bear witness to the love of the gospel right now. And we have to take that opportunity and live into what scripture calls us to love. It's not about politics. We need to get behind the political divisions and actually bear witness to the love and mercy of Jesus Christ in this moment because the world tells us people will come to know the saving grace of our Lord and Savior when we do that. This is an evangelistic opportunity for us to show up and bear witness to the gospel of right now. And so when we talk about this, and we talk about the challenges of following Christ in the midst of worldly empires that have other priorities. Let's look at some of the challenges. When one benefits from and finds comfort within the confines of empire, it is, it's extremely difficult to divest oneself from its trappings. When the empire is understood as the source of safety, security, and abundant life, slowly but surely it becomes an idol, whether we're conscious of it or not. And biblically, idolatry is anything that we give ourselves to other than God. Therefore, when we give our allegiance to worldly empires, we fight to sustain oppressive status quo that enable their financial prosperity because our hopes and our dreams become tied to it. But when we do that, we don't look at the implications it has for our neighbors. When we know that the, the, the um, comfort that we have comes at the expense of our neighbors. As Christians, we don't have an option of being silenced in the face of that reality. We have a responsibility to step up, show up, and speak out to bear witness to the love of our Savior. 
I want to show a video really quickly that actually uh, encapsulates what I'm talking about. And I want to come back and I want to spend a little bit of time of how we see the power of God manifested through how this story um, ends up. A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. Give your life completely to business and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work and you work and you work and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? And that question though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know why they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family even. Because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean, is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times we fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your own. You never stop fighting for your own. And if there is one lie that we have bought into as the Western church is that we are not each other's own. We don't see each other as people that we're connected to, as people that we have a responsibility to love sacrificially. And because of this, all of the injustices that we just went through were able to transpire. Imagine if the church in those moments had raised its collective voice, its moral and ethical voice, and said that we will not be complicit in silence in the face of what's unfolding. When we read this passage, what's so interesting to me in Exodus is that you know that there had to be Egyptians who knew that it, what was happening was wrong. You know there had to be Egyptians who knew that slavery was unjust and that the commission, the killing of all boys just because of their ethnic identity was not something that they wanted to be a part of. But there's not one witness in scripture of an Egyptian stepping up, speaking up, and speaking out against what was happening, refusing to go along with the status quo. And I think what's so powerful about this text is that you actually see that it's the power of proximity, because it's easy to believe all the propaganda and actually slowly but surely dehumanize somebody when you don't know them, when you're not actually connected to them, when you don't know their story, when you actually haven't seen the humanity in them. And what's one of the most powerful parts of this story is the witness that we ultimately see that Pharaoh's daughter bears in this story. So Pharaoh's daughter grew up in a house full of bigotry, 
But when she encounters this child, she says, this must be one of those Hebrew boys. So she's saying, like, I know what I'm supposed to do when I see the Hebrew boys. And she picks him up and looks into his eyes. But when she looks into his eyes, she doesn't see a disposable person. She actually sees somebody else made in the image of God. But she had to wade into the water. She had to get close. She had to get proximate to actually see that she had been taught to dehumanize somebody else who was made in the image of God. And it was through this encounter that she had this gospel revelation that there are no disposable people within the kingdom of God. That we are each other's own. And people that we've been taught to actually see as categorically different than us are actually our neighbors who we are commissioned to love. And so when she encounters him, she has this gospel transformation in her vision. She ultimately lives out of that conviction, and she chooses to disobey her father. And in doing so, think of everything she puts on the line. Pharaoh's the most powerful person in the land. If word gets out that his own daughter won't even listen to him, he loses all of his power and influence throughout society. Nobody else has to take him seriously. She could have been expelled from her family. She could have lost her generational inheritance, all for a person that she didn't even know, a person that she was taught was expendable. But that's the sacrificial love of Christ manifested in her life. And that's what the gospel calls us to. And so in the midst of a society that creates haves and have-nots, um, we are called to be people when we realize that the privileges and the benefits that we have come at the expense of our neighbor, we have to be bold like Pharaoh's daughter and be willing to actually step away from those things to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. One of the most concrete questions that the gospel asks us is, is the gospel still good news when it costs us something? And in this text, Pharaoh's daughter answers with a profound yes. It could have cost her everything, and she didn't even know this baby. But not only does she save Moses' life, she later brings Moses back into Pharaoh's house and raises him in Pharaoh's house. The audacity of this young girl is profound. It's crazy. It's revolutionary. But that's what the gospel is. But the other thing that speaks to the power of God at work in this, there's a systemic injustice that actually separates Moses from his mom. But God orchestrates it so in a way that not only is Moses' life saved, but he makes it so that Pharaoh's daughter pays Moses' mother to actually be reconciled to him and to raise him. God has the power to work in and through the body of Christ, even in the midst of systemic injustice, when we choose to sacrificially love and bear witness to what we know is right and when we don't cower in the face of fear. The gospel compels us. Scripture tells us God has not given us a spirit of fear. The gospel compels us to choose love in the face of fear. And when we do, that is when we see the world radically transformed. I had a seminary professor who said it to me this way. He says, everything in this world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. He said, that is everything except the scriptures. The scriptures actually teach us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral bloodlines. And it's baptism that must redefine who family is for us as the body of Christ. When we go out into the world and live into a baptismal vision of family, we will see unity. We will see love manifested, and we will see, come, we will see people come to know the saving nature of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Hillcrest. 